0: Thanks, uh, thanks, Tom, uh, for reading that for us. It'd be great if you can keep that open. Uh, that'll be the part of the Bible that we'll be looking at uh, this evening. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us, and uh, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, thank you again for the chance to praise your name. Thank you for the events that are before us tonight. Thank you, Father, for this chance to gather in this place. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be ready to listen Father, help our concentration, give us energy and focus, give us soft hearts, Father, and willing ears. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you might be at work here tonight to challenge and change us, for we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. What's worth saying tonight, uh, we are going to ask you to change, isn't that good? Not get changed, so that's okay, I think you look great. Uh, But we are going to ask you to think about changing your life. I'm going to present Jesus as risen from the dead. I'm going to say, if that's true, that should impact our lives. So at some point later in the service, I'm going to ask you to consider going, today might be a really great day uh, to make a decision uh, about him. We've been running a a series for the last term. Uh, We've been asking people, Jesus is, how would you finish that sentence? And tonight we've got to, Jesus is alive. Which is pretty good and not particularly unexpected on Easter Sunday. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Let, let me start with a little bit of audience participation because this will kind of get us in the mood for tonight. Uh, nothing's as certain as. Some people are into it. And some of you are wondering, I don't know what's very certain. What is certain? Nothing, do you, have you heard this? Am I on my own here? Nothing's as certain as death and taxes? Good. Excellent. So nothing's as certain as death and taxes. The idea is you cannot avoid death and you cannot avoid taxes. Wonderful. Uh, Except in our world where at the moment we're trying to turn this upside down and what we're saying is don't worry, you're forever young and we won't talk about taxes anymore, we'll talk about tax cuts. Because I haven't heard a politician suggest since I think John Howard that anyone's going to put taxes up, all they're doing is cutting them. So death and taxes, not as certain anymore. You can live forever and you'll have less tax to pay pretty soon. Interestingly enough, when we have a look at the ancient world, we actually find that the Romans had a bash at connecting death and taxes. In fact, what they did was uh, they used to bury people uh, with a coin in their mouths to cross over the river Styx into the underworld. And so you were buried literally with a tax in your mouth in order to make the journey further onward and as we look at the way other people did burial most of the time they were trying to equip people for the next uh the next thing that happened after death so the vikings would bury you with a shield and an axe to get you ready for valhalla which clearly wasn't very peaceful i don't know it's so funny isn't it we Uh, it's worth noting how profoundly Christian our views of the next life are, right? But here's a group of people, you'll need your axe and you'll need your shield, get into it. How wonderful, okay? For the Hindus, I was reading this week, uh, they place next to the dead a lamp to guide their souls through the darkness to their next incarnation. Christians, on the other hand, they get buried with... Sorry? Sorry? Sunday clothes, in their Sunday clothes, very good Peter, but that we don't put any objects with them. It's quite remarkable. So everyone else is equipping people because they have in mind that there's an afterlife, but Christians quite distinctly aren't buried with kit for the next life. On the basis, you are ready because everything will be provided. It's really interesting, it's quite a distinction. In fact, if we have a look at it, uh, all of these other cultures, and in fact most pagan cultures did not bury their dead. Instead, they burned them. They burned them. And they burned them to ashes. The idea is basically, it makes sense symbolically. I don't want to have a dead body sitting around. It's a bit inconvenient and unhealthy. So what do we do? We burn a body, but what happens with the fire? Smoke goes up, doesn't it? And so we have this profound sense when we're looking at that, somebody is being released and let into the next life. So burning was The standard thing that people did with bodies until the Christians came along, and what do the Christians do? They bury people. What, why do we bury people? We bury people because we believe in a bodily resurrection. We believe that people who are dead will come to life again, they'll come to life again, and interestingly enough. Uh, Romans, Vikings, uh, I don't know about the Hindus, but certainly the Romans and the Vikings, as they had engagement with Christians, changed their practices to burial. Quite amazing. So this is a profoundly Christian thing. Now it doesn't mean that Christians can't do cremations, which we do lots of these days, but the idea was we were sending a symbol to say, we believe that the body will rise again. Well there's a lot of things that people have believed over time. However, we as a society in general are in denial about death. We're in denial about death. Let me make the case. When, when you go to this room, does anyone know where this is? So you know, <laughs> at Leppington, right? Has anyone been here at the Lawn Cemetery? Very good. Thank you, Xavi. Savie has. When, when you go to that room and all of us will at some point. When you go to that room, you get face to face with the fact that our society doesn't do death very well. We just don't do death very well. The thing that we need to remember, despite all of our, des- our denials, is that we will all end up in that box. We will all end up in a box, every single one of us, whether it's out there at the Lawn Cemetery Or, and I said this to the guys this morning, whether it's eventually in here. Every one of us, at some point, will end up in a box. And what happens in that room? In that room, mostly, you have lilies and lies. Seriously. That's what's going on. Hi, Lily. (laughs) Not you. If I said roses and lies, would that be better? Okay, good. But, but, but here's what happens. I, I, I truly believe we have nothing adult to say as a society in that room. Pe- people who will sweat on a mortgage and will work out their holidays and, and, and you know get down to the nth degree on the paint finish they put on their rooms have not thought about death and have nothing adult to say. And you guys have heard me rant on this before if you've been coming for a while. We say, they're up in heaven having a beer watching us. And I can't believe how vapid that is and the fact that no one's saying it and no one listening to it actually believes that's happening and yet it's the lie that we say. So here's the thing. Who do we know is in heaven? Forget everybody else. Who must be in heaven if it's heaven? God. And here's someone who had no time for God in their entire life, and what we're saying is they're in heaven. They're hanging out with God. If no one else is there, the person we know is there is God. And where are they? Someone who never set foot in a church, had no time for God. They're going to spend eternity now. We've put them up there with God, who they had no time for. It doesn't check out. Are you with me? It's a lie, and no one believes it. When we get to this room... I'm telling you, we have nothing as a society adult to say. And we need to do better because every one of us will end up in the box. Here's what the Bible says. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Gracious, I came to church tonight and you're throwing this in my face. What what are you doing to me? I think this is really helpful. If that's true, if the box is true, then we need to get ready. It's better, the Bible says, to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. I don't think it's saying it's more fun. It's just saying you'll be better prepared for life if you've engaged with that room. Let's see what the Bible has to say in that passage that we were looking at in, um, in Hebrews chapter 2. If you can get it open, uh, that'd be really helpful. While you're doing that, uh, can you, someone remind me of the page? 1205, is that right? 1205? Great. Um, I was reading about London. London spr- uh, sprang up and became the biggest city in the world. And uh, as it sprang up and became the biggest city in the world, it started to get pretty awkward because people living on top of people just gets difficult really quickly. And I used the example this morning. I said, as anyone who's ever been camping knows. And everyone looked back at me blankly and I said, that's because you're not the campers? Because if you were the campers, you'd be away this weekend, wouldn't you? Hilarious! All right, so here's the thing: when people are living in close proximity to each other, they get on each other's nerves. On top of that, they start to produce a whole lot of pollution, not just pollution in the air, and that was London's major problem. They were burning, uh, burning uh, coal fires, and there was just massive smogs, which is causing all sorts of problems. But the other thing that happens when people eat stuff is that they pass stuff through them, and that stuff was not being dealt with at all. That was being tipped out the window and into the streets. And after the great stink of 1857, true thing, look it up. After the great stink of 1857, they said, we've got to do something about this. People were dying. They're dying of cholera. okay. And what they thought was, they thought the problem was bad air, called miasma, was causing the problems. So they thought the problem was bad air. Stinky, yucky air is killing people. So what do you do? Well, we try and get rid of the bad air and put good air in its place. How did that work out? Not very well, because where was the problem? The problem was the sewer running all over the ground everywhere and into their drinking water. So finally, finally, a man got onto the problem and he worked out what the true problem was. The true problem was that they needed to move all their effluent out of London and they eventually laid 21,000 kilometres of sewer throughout London and absolutely banished cholera from the city. See, the problem is, if you don't know what the problem is, you'll never be able to solve it. I want to show you that we have a problem, and it's illustrated by two guys who met with God. We have a problem with God. One of the people that met God was a man called Isaiah, and it says that he met God in the temple. And when he was in the temple... There's God. God appears to him and he's very humble. He doesn't tell us what God looks like. He says he saw the hem of his robe and the temple filled with smoke. And in the presence of God, Isaiah said, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah figured out that in the presence of a holy God, he was in trouble. His problem was he wasn't holy. He was sinful. Another example, some people with Jesus on a boat, and you guys have probably heard this story, they're in the boat, and all of a sudden a huge storm blows up. As the storm blows up, Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. They go and wake him up. Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Jesus goes, oh, let me take care of this. And he says, quiet, be still. The wind dies down, and the water is perfectly calm. Now that's an awesome miracle, but what's the response of the people on the boat? The response of the people on the boat is, Peter says, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. In the presence of powerful holiness, the sin of Peter and the sin of Isaiah caused them to call out and say, God, I need a solution. The real problem for humanity is sin. Not just education or better clothing or better housing. The biggest problem we have with God is sin. So what do we do? Hebrews tells us exactly what God does. In Hebrews 2, 9, we see, it says this, but we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, sin's sentence, the punishment for sin is death, and Jesus that's Good Friday, died on the cross. Jesus truly died and he died in our place. That's Good Friday. Jesus truly died and he died in our place. Then we see what that death achieved in verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. See, what was the outcome? Sinful people are made family. Death, Jesus' death, cleanses sinners. And holiness makes us family. We can hang out with God because our sins are washed away. That's pretty awesome. Uh, I like these things. Anyone know what this is? It's a magnet. It's a better thing. What type of magnet is it? Electromagnet, fantastic. So here's the thing. Big lump of steel, pass an electric current through it, it magnetizes If you switch it off, what happens to that metal thing? Fall straight down, right? So it's not magnetic all the time. It has immense power when it's on and when the power's running through the magnet. Switch it off, powerless. This can be used not just for picking up... I was trying to find one picking up a car. Apparently they do that with claws, but it must be something from a movie or something. Anyway, I kind of have this feeling, I'm really hunting for that image, magnet, car, but anyway. Beside the point. That is one way of doing it. That's a big, powerful version. There's another way that we use it. You can actually just press a button. Do you know people when they have the press the button to release the door? Have you you seen this? When you've got that, the magnet's released and the door is open. So it's locked, can't get out, press the button, power is cut, door can open. It's all about power. And when the power is removed, the strength goes and the lock is unlocked. Have a look with me at what Jesus did in verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is pretty awesome. This is why we've got open bird cages and freedom happening around the place. There's slavery coming to an end. Jesus defeats the devil on the cross. He breaks the power of him who holds the power of death. And so he frees those who all their life were kept in slavery by their fear of death. He defeats the devil and he frees the fearful. That's Easter Sunday. That's what it has achieved. There's one more thing I want you to see from this little passage here in, uh, in Hebrews, and it involves me going back to London. As I said this morning, I've been having a bit of a London phase at the moment. Who lives here? Does anyone know, kids? Anyone know? Oh, Isaac's having a go, yes mate. The Queen, correct, well played. It's Buckingham Palace. It's pretty good to be the Queen, uh, small residents, uh, pretty humble. Now, it's great, isn't it, right? You've got all these advantages, you have all this power, apparently you have money, or you have some sort of influence. Um, now, uh, that's pretty good, but, but it also kind of leaves you a little bit abstracted from the people. Can you see what's around the outside of the Queen's house? A great big fence. And so riches, power, authority all reside behind that fence. Then the Germans started to bomb London, And the queen and the king, doing queen and kingly duties, used to go out and see the people whose homes had been destroyed. And they found it really difficult. Because where are they living? Literally in a palace. Until 10th of September, 1940, this happened. The Germans somehow got their aim onto Buckingham Palace. And the palace itself was bombed. The king and the queen were okay. But they actually suffered loss. And so for the first time, the Queen Mother writes in her diary, for the first time, I could look the east end in the face. For the first time, I could look the east end in the face because we too had participated in their suffering. Not just all that privilege, all that separation, but now they too were suffering with them. See the beauty of that here in Hebrews. For this reason, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see this? It's so good. We see that Jesus, because he was made like us, has empathy to be our priest. He gets us. He wept at the funeral of his friend. He did a trade. He got tired and fell asleep in a boat before a storm. He knew what it was to have family, and I assume to have annoying brothers and sisters and all the rest of it. He was profoundly human. And so we have a priest who's able to empathize with us. We also have one who, through the cross, is able to make atonement for our sins. And we look at that word and we go, what's he done? I like this cheat. Okay, have a look up here. What does atonement mean? Atonement. Restored relationship. Okay? It was broken by sin. By sacrifice, we're made one again. Yeah? Atonement. Everyone got it? Awesome. So that's what Jesus did on Good Friday. But then it says something even more wonderful. It says, because he himself himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to assist us in our weakness. And you think, okay, when did Jesus die? This is not a trick question. How long ago did Jesus die? 2,000 years ago. So two millennia ago, a man in Palestine died. And we're saying tonight, he can help you in your weakness. How is that third one possible? How is it possible? Well, as a simple answer, we're going to argue tonight, Jesus is alive. We're going to say he can help you because he's alive. But how do you know? Come on. Seriously. How do you know he's alive? I mean, it's a great thing to say in church and all that. But really, how do you know? I want to bring you into the garden where Annabelle was reading for us. And I want you to think with me On that first Easter Sunday morning, which now seems a long time away from us, because some of us got up early with Easter egg hunts and very... But on that first Easter egg uh, hunt, no, no. On that first Sunday morning, what was happening? Well, number one, where were the blokes, right? Where were the blokes on the first Easter Sunday morning? Well, the men were home afraid. That's where they were. They were home afraid. They didn't go anywhere, it says, for fear of the Jews. They had their doors locked for fear of the Jews. That's where they were. How about the women? Much braver. What were they doing? What were the women doing? They had kilograms of spices over their shoulders. What were they coming to do? The answer is anoint a body. What does that prove to you? What sort of body were they expecting to find? good, you guys are all mumbling it beautifully, a dead one, right? You don't bring spices, you don't bring spices to someone who's alive, you bring spices to cover over the stink of a decaying body, that's what you're doing. So the women, far more brave than the men, but they're going to anoint a dead body, that's what they're doing. And what about Mary? There's Mary in the garden. And when she finds the tomb empty, she goes running back and says, the resurrection is that." That's not what she said. She goes back and she says, they have taken the body. She doesn't know who it is. She doesn't know what's happened, but she says, they have taken the body. Just letting you in, that's a little embarrassing. The blokes are home. The women are anointing a dead bloke and the woman who sees the empty tomb says, somebody's stolen him. Here's some insight. You didn't discover scepticism about the the garden. You didn't discover it tonight. You didn't discover it three weeks ago. Scepticism is in the garden on the first Sunday. Do you see this? They didn't believe it. The Bible says that Jesus told them three times he would rise from the dead, and how ready are his closest followers? They're an utter embarrassment. I'm not saying it would have been any better, but they are utterly unready for what they find in the garden. That's pretty striking, isn't it? If I'm writing the Bible and I'm making it up because it's all a fable, I'd cut that bit out. Let me give you four reasons to think further why it may actually be that Jesus is alive. Number one, I'll go through these pretty quickly. Number one, efficient Romans. Romans crucified a lot of people. They're pretty good at it. It's pretty brutal stuff. What did they do to Jesus before they crucified him? Anyone know? Sorry? They did that, but that was at the end. Yes, Ruby? Sorry? They made him die. Yes. I poked him in the eye. Made him blind. What happened to his head? Crown of thorns? What happened to his back? Whipped. No, better than that. He was flogged. Massacred unbelievably abused he's abused flogged beaten around the head crown of thorns then he is nailed to a cross through his hands a spike is put through his feet they hang him they drop the cross into the hole they drop the cross into the hole and they leave him there for hours hanging under his own weight now you would die of exposure pretty quickly But to get down from a Roman cross is not very easy. What was the charge above Jesus' head? King of the Jews. He was being punished as what? A traitor. A rebel against Caesar. Who were Caesar's boys? The Romans. Yeah? So someone is trying to overthrow your boss. Your job is to kill them, but wait on. How do you make sure the guy's dead before you take him down? In fact, we flogged him and nailed him. How do you make sure he's dead? What do you do? Well, you grab a great big spear and you shove it up under his ribcage into his heart. Pull it out, watch the stuff flow out and go, yep, I think he's done. Now, if that's not enough, I'm saying to you, what Roman soldier would let down a Jewish rebel alive? None. Why? Because his own life would be at stake if he did it. I want to tell you the Romans were absolutely efficient at killing people, and there's no way that Jesus got down dead, uh, not dead from the cross. Thank you, good, well played. So I want to say the Romans are efficient. Number two, I want to say that the Jews were jealous. The problem you have if you say that Jesus is alive is what happens next, right? So you go, no, 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 he didn't really die on the cross. And I go, fair enough, fine, no problems. He didn't die on the cross. What happens next? How famous was Jesus? He was pretty famous. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone was throwing palm leaves in the air and saying, hail, son of David, and various other bits and pieces. Do you remember Palm Sunday? A few people recognized him, yeah? Let's say he lived. Who hated him enough to kill him? The Jews. So now he lived and he's wandering around in Jerusalem. What are they going to do to him? They're going to kill him. Who else wants him dead? The Romans. Who wants to make him into their God? The Christians. Who's going to hide him away? No one. So now he's on display and the Jews hate him and the Romans want to kill him. How long is he going to live in Jerusalem? And if he didn't live in Jerusalem, where did he go? And if he went somewhere else else, and Christians proclaim him as God, how come we don't have that chapter of the Bible? What about this one? If you're going to start a religion that says that uh, a dead person came back to life again, why don't you go somewhere else? Right? Let's get as far away from the tomb as possible. Because there's a stinky body somewhere if he didn't rise from the dead. So let's say it's a lie. Didn't rise from the dead. I'm going to proclaim he's alive again. Where am I going to go? I'm going to go far away. Let's go uh, somewhere to India and start saying that Jesus came alive again. Except they didn't do that. They made an absolutely ludicrous launch for this Christian thing, and they did it in Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified and where his tomb was. How much service life does Christianity have as a religion, if you can produce a stinky body? But where do they do it? They do it in Jerusalem, where he was crucified, and they say, this man is the son of God, and he rose from the dead. That's ludicrous, unless it's true. Number four, Let's go with the conspiracy theory. It was all about trying to make people powerful, right? So they wrote the Bible to to put themselves into positions of power. How did that work out for the powerful people? Well, 11 disciples survived their engagement with Jesus. Ten of them were killed. And the 11th died in jail, proclaiming what? That Jesus was alive. It's a pretty crazy conspiracy if everybody keeps their trap shut, nobody lets slip that they were doctoring the bull. It doesn't work out, does it? Trying to hide the truth, it never works out. Someone will always leak it and you can't tell me that 11 people will die proclaiming a lie. It just never happens. So I want to tell you tonight, Jesus is alive. He really is, at least it's the best account that I've heard of what the facts are. If you've got a better account, that's great, but do it as an adult. Come and join me at Jesus for the curious and persuade me. I'm I'm up for it. Jesus is alive. So what? Well, I want to introduce you to the most expensive bit of real estate in Sydney. Know where it is? I mean, we like real estate in Oran Park. It's pretty good. But where's the most expensive real estate in Sydney? Yeah, Eastern Suburbs Cemetery. Here we go. Or Waverley Cemetery, wherever this one here is. Uh, It's right by the sea there. And uh, I looked up um, how much a plot in Waverley Cemetery is. And uh, for a body-sized hole, because that's all you need, pretty good real estate purchase, right? Just this much land. Uh, One of those, you can get it for a 25-year lease, a 50-year lease, a 75-year lease, or the big big kahuna, a 99-year lease. Who doesn't want that? I mean, that's pretty good. How much is that going to cost you? Well, I'm telling you, if you want that little bit of land for 99 years, you can have it for the bargain basement price of $65,000. Get into it, hey? Here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? Whether it's by the sea, which incidentally, no one's enjoying the view. It's funny, I I, I get it, like really, but seriously, no one's enjoying the view, right? So here's the thing, you'll get your turn. Maybe not in Waverley, maybe not in the Lawn Cemetery up here, but you'll get your turn. Why does it matter that Jesus is alive? Because it makes all the difference on that day, all the difference in the world. Do you know what it is to fear death? My sister told me when she was growing up that she used to fall asleep crying about her fear of death, wondering what would happen after she died. Night after night, I never knew this as a brother, night after night she would fall asleep crying, wondering what would happen after death. And she told me it all changed when she became a Christian. She never had that fear again because she knew for sure what would happen after she died. Do you know that fear? Do you know the sin that you need to be forgiven for? And do you want that freedom that's on offer tonight? There's a wonderful uh, quote from a guy called Jim Elliott. He says, He is no fool. It's April Fool's Day today. I couldn't let it go. April Fool's Day. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you hang on to your life, you'll lose it. Jesus says, If you lose it for me, I will give it back to you for all eternity. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So tonight, I want to tell you Jesus is alive, and I think it makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. And I want to just bring it home. I want to say, Jesus is alive, or. Oh, where's it going? It's here, Jefferson. It? Or. I, I, I did this this morning, right? But I, I, I think Australians like straight shooting. Sorry for a bit of straight shooting? Jesus is alive and your life has meaning and dignity and it will continue beyond the grave or you're a bag of compost. If you don't believe this is true, if there is no life beyond this life, You're a bag of compost, delaying yourself becoming worm food. And that renders life hopeless and worthless, and I would say terrifying. I don't think, just like there's no society in the past that believed in the extinction of the soul, I don't think there are any actual humans kicking around who believe that nothing happens after this life. We have inadequate explanations for it, but we all have hope for it. I want to tell you today, choose Christ, not compost. Choose faith, not fertilizer. Make a decision today to say, I'm with the guy who beat death. I want to live. And today I want to give you the opportunity to do that. It's a really simple prayer that we can pray. We can say, God, I want to know that assurance myself. We want to say, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. We want to say, I'm sorry for my sin. And we want to say, please forgive me and come into my life as king. Now, I said that I'd ask you to pray with me at some point, and this is that time. I, I don't know, it's, it's Sunday night. Are you ready to change your life? What's on offer is extraordinary. Forgiveness and confidence in the face of death. I'm going to give you an opportunity now to pray this prayer with me. I'm going to say some words. I'll leave some space and give you an opportunity to repeat them in your own heart. How about we pray? Dear God, thank you for sending your son to die for us. I am sorry for my sin. I know that I've hurt you and others. Please forgive me. Please come into my life as king. Amen. That's a funny thing. Often, uh, often um, my kids are here tonight. Hello, Ruby. Hello, Isaac. I don't use you guys as illustrations very much at all, but bear with me. I think sometimes you can think, that's too easy, right? Um, you just say some magic words and you'll get your eternity sorted out. Uh, when I ask my kids to say sorry, right, they can do this. Sorry. At which point, I go, oh, that's fine. You've done really well. Great. No problems. Do you think I accept that? No, I don't. So what do I say? Try it again. Sorry. Take a deep breath. Look them in the eye. Tell them why and say you're sorry. I'm sorry, Dad. No problems. I can tell when it's real and when it's fake. And so can your Heavenly Father. They're really simple words that we prayed tonight, but if you meant them, they can change your eternity. What should we do in response? Well, I'd love you to come back again. Uh, There's a little card, maybe on your seat, telling you when our services are at the start of next term. Uh, We'll be back next week at 10 o'clock, but pretty soon we're not going to be. Are they out? If you, go, if you go fishing underneath the seat, you'll find one that looks like that. Come back again. We'd love to do church with you. That'd be great. Uh, there's a little card that looks like this. Michael will make sure we fill it out in a second. But there's a little card like that. I'd love everybody to get that out. And if you prayed that prayer, ticket box there. I have, I've, had, I've had these boxes ticked in every service this weekend. So I'm sure there are people here tonight who've done it. If you've done it, why do I want you to tick it? Because I'd love to follow you up and help you to follow Jesus. So let, you, let us know. Uh, Number three, you might want to come and do Jesus for the Curious with us. And there's a box to say that. And if there isn't, on your card, just write, I'd like to do Jesus for the Curious. Let me know when it's on. That'd be great. And if you're here tonight and you know Jesus already, that's the best news in the world. Tell someone. That'd be great. I started tonight by saying there's nothing as certain as. And if you didn't know it before, now you do. Fantastic. I want to tell you tonight, there's nothing as certain as death and resurrection. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I give you great thanks for what Jesus has done. I pray tonight we might hear it afresh. Rejoice in it if we know it already. Take hold of it if we haven't. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we do this thing occasionally, uh, pretty regularly now, uh, where we do our Q&A. Now, there doesn't have to be any questions tonight. And you might not have any, but I want to give you the opportunity to do that. So if anyone here has a question to follow up that that'd be really helpful if you put your hands up michael will run around and bring your mic hello this is a question that a friend asked me um about um i don't know how to phrase it about saying that if you think your life goes nowhere after death then therefore your life is meaningless yeah how is that true? How is that true? Yeah, so I, th- I, think, that's, uh, I think that's overstating it in a sense. Can you, can you have any impact in this life that might be of use passing f- further forward? Sure. Um, if you have kids and you teach them to run a good race, they'll, they'll keep living after you. You build a foundation that, uh, that does good for the poor, well done, that'll, that'll, give up, that'll last after you. But the, the thing, I guess, that strikes me is um, how many people can tell me the first name of their great-great-grandfather. You can? Have you done your family tree? Could you just tell me the name, just because it's cool? Gerard, fantastic. How many people are here tonight? I don't know. Guys, this is our families. Not someone else's families. Not something that is impossible for us to know. We, we can do family tree stuff, and clearly you have. But isn't it striking Most of us don't know the first name of our direct relatives. So when you say, is my life worthwhile, right? What I'd say to you is, does anything really last? Not couldn't you make a contribution? I think people make contributions all the time, right? But does anything last? I think time renders all of our work worthless. It just disappears. It's no longer with us. And so I would say, can I do something that will last forever? That's what's on offer. Okay? And so I I wouldn't say, so there's some preacher's, you know, energy here. It's it's not that nothing good can happen from a life, but when everything is forgotten, really forgotten, to be the point not even your name is remembered, what have we left? Do Do you understand? And so I think the question's fair, but I think it's stunning how quickly you'll be forgotten. Truly mortifying any other questions? That's put a stop to it, hasn't it? Hey, but don't worry, you want to live forever? Talk to Jesus. Um, I'm going to sit down and Michael's going to tell us what's happening next.